and welcome back to Manhunting, which Waypoint and friends are working through the filmography of Michael Mann and examining his themes of labor and craft, capitalist oppression, and dudes rocking. Uh, this is our first show of 2022, and it's our first show since we started living in a Heat 2 world. Uh, today, as usual, I'm joined by my fellow maniacs, Alex Navarro and Dia Lucina. And today we're also joined uh, by the Black Dragon himself, Jeff Green. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm super happy to be here. I've been listening to uh, man hunting so far, and you guys are you're pretty on point. You're pretty I would pretty like to be part point. of that. My- Praise from Caesar. I'm very on point. <laughs> Is that better? Yes. No, I, I can take criticism from Jeff Green. I'll, I'll allow it. <laughs> I have no criticism. No criticism. Uh, so before we get into the, to today's main topic, I do have to ask, what on earth do y'all make of this weird book announcement oh. Michael Mann put out for Heat 2? Because that's what it is. It's a book yeah. he co-wrote with Meg Gardner. And I would, I would, if I were a betting man... I would put a bet that mostly it is ghostwritten by Meg Gardner based Mm -hmm. on an outline provided by Michael Mann. But it apparently covers events both before and after the action of the movie Heat, which is interesting because I didn't really have a lot of questions about what came before or after (laughs) Heat. It's a weird way to uh, get your pitch to HBO executives. I think there's guys... They're still mad about luck. So, you know, he's got to he's got to take a circuitous God, route. I to forgot there. about luck. How could you forget about luck? I, I, you I know, have a very I was, good therapist. W- w- were you guys fooled for a second like I was and thinking that it actually was going to be a movie? Oh, yeah. Like for half a second. Yes. Hundred percent. Like and I even know I have even internalized that like books have trailers now and I know what book trailers look like. And still for a moment, I was like. Heat two. At first, I thought it was a prank. Then I thought it was a movie trailer, uh, and then I saw it was a book promo. And I, I don't know how I felt. I still don't know how I feel. I think I'm- hearing that it is a sequel and prequel in a Godfather two style thing is like okay. I'm willing to go along for that ride. I don't know if it would be better served by being a book or a movie. I mean. I've read my share of Hollywood people's vanity book projects. I have read an honest to God Gene Hackman book, for God's sakes. But uh, (laughs) I don't know that this is a thing that I want, but it is a thing that I will force myself to experience. The thing is, dads like books. They do. Dads do like books. But but all the reasons that we like heat, is it because of the words? Like, I'm not convinced. You know, some of them with Michael Mann in general, that's so that's actually something like I was going to bring up in today's show, too, because like watching this, it kind of crystallized for me. I think maybe it's only the insider where I think it's mostly a good script holding things together, maybe collateral, too. But like the insider, I think, is a Tony Gilroy co-written thing. Um, But I don't think man. Has a lot of great scenes, but I don't. Th- and some I, I think very good lines. Point. Yeah, some very good lines. As far as I know, though, like he doesn't have any script writing credit for like any episode of Crime Story. Did he write any episodes of Miami Vice? I mean, we don't. How good a writer Famously, is this Michael wrote, Mann guy? I think he co-wrote one episode of Miami yeah. Vice. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So like I am, but, but I'm kind of, I'm kind of of a mind with Dia here, which is that this has got to be a backdoor pitch to like getting another TV project off the ground and showing like, Hey, this idea still has mileage in it. And there is like an appetite for this. Um, he also has an HBO thing coming, right? Like Tokyo Vice. Tokyo Vice. Yeah. Yes, that is coming this year. So, I mean, that I'm excited about. Look, it could be. More than we're, we could, you know, and I think this is this is fitting because the thing is, like, what I didn't realize until I saw Crime Story is that my, maybe Michael Mann is a guy who feels like he just missed the boat on prestige TV. And there's always been a part of him. that has been like, you know, if I could have had a long running, but like limited episode per season series, I'd have killed it. Like I, like he tried it with luck, but like from what I, from what I've read about that, the mistake there is him and David Milch was like oil and water, which I can totally understand. Cause they're both from what I gather, like complete control freaks. Uh, so like that is happening in the background of luck, but like, I didn't like watching crime story. I was like, man, Michael Mann in the eighties is secretly like thinking he, he sees the future and the future for him. He's hoping is like HBO, like like, style shows from the late nineties, early two thousands. Unfortunately, he is pitching the future to a network that still wants a 22 episode season every year and does not necessarily understand the concept of a long running storyline that doesn't have something to do with soap operas, you know? Right. So, yeah, that's and that's kind of what we're all here to talk about, which is this. It's a it's not a weird side project because this was his main project before he like really devoted himself fully two feature films, but I do think it is like a path not taken uh, in man's career. 1986 is crime story. Uh, and that's, this is the show he was able to make when Miami vice effectively gave him a blank check. And he spent that check on a period police drama starring the relatively unknown Dennis Farina, uh, which is wild thing about like, no, like he had bit parts in a couple movies before this. And then like, we're just going to, pin this entire series to this guy. Uh, and he is playing an obsessed Chicago cop pursuing a vicious and ambitious mafia lieutenant, Ray Luca, played by Anthony Dennison, across the criminal landscape of Chicago and Las Vegas in the 1950s. I think we're going to end up touching on parts of the whole series run as part of this conversation. Uh, To give you the broad overview, the series starts out as a really tightly serialized Chicago crime epic, and then it executes a pre-planned shift to Las Vegas halfway through season one, a little more than halfway through season one. Uh, The show at this point, though, was dogged by weak ratings, and so with season two, and I gather there was also a writer's strike when they were working on the second season, um, which what you guys were saying before the show maybe shows a little bit uh, in the quality of scripts they're filming in that second season, uh, but it tries to reinvent itself as a bit more of a case of the week show than it had been before with maybe some wacky Miami Vice side plots uh, happening and it starts doing goofier and goofier shit. Uh, including just like Miami Vice, a long excursion in Latin America that culminates in a series ending cliffhanger in which Torello and Luca are brawling aboard a crashing plane that is last seen going nose first into the ocean. 
I don't want to get too far ahead of us here because that is going to be a whole section of conversation on its own. But yeah, man, <laughs> so, this series goes places. So if you're talking about Crime Story as a series, you're kind of talking about three different incarnations of the show, at least. Uh, but I think the pilot gives you a really good taste for what the original creative vision for the show is. And we're going to get really into uh, into the pilot for starters because it almost stands alone as a short, pretty vicious, hard-boiled cop movie uh, directed by Abel Ferrara. It opens on a stick-up-gone-laughably-wrong expressway car chase from downtown Chicago into the burbs. And the emergence of our two main protagonists, uh, Detective Torello, who's established as an intensely driven and kind of scary cop in charge of an elite major crimes unit that responds to that opening robbery. And then Ray Luca, a mid-level gangster uh, who masterminded that heist, uh, if if it could be called something that required a mastermind, but someone who sort of contracted the heist uh, that puts the MCU on his trail. Uh, The two men share an even more direct connection through David Caruso's Johnny O'Donnell, who is the prototypical (laughs) David Caruso character. Uh, He emerges fully Mm -hmm. formed like a beautiful butterfly as a callow shithead uh, with way more uh, confidence than sense, uh, which, you know, that's Crusoe's career as well. Yep. <laughs> and he is a kid brother type character from Torello's old neighborhood. And he has just started working for Luca as a skilled thief. In short order, O'Donnell has carried off a major heist for Luca, gotten enraged at the stingy deal he's offered from Luca's mob boss, a slimy Joe Bartoli, played by, frankly, the greatest actor to ever play these characters, uh, John Polito. Perfect. Yeah. Uh, He starts carrying out unauthorized heists against businesses protected by Chicago outfit. And Torello realizes he's in such deep shit that he's going to get killed. So he tries to save him from the outfit and does get the hit contract pulled. But in a tragic twist, it's too late to save Johnny, who is killed by Luca before Luca gets word that the contract is canceled. Uh, That plus the fact Luca ambushes and kills one of Torello's detectives turns Torello's investigation into a crusade. They attempt to catch him in the act of robbing a department store. Luca senses the trap and escapes. His Confederates go on with the job. There's a massive shootout. At the end, setting up the rest of the series, Torello confronts Luca at his club and threatens to kill him. But he's convinced by his right-hand man, old reliable Bill Smitrovich, uh, Mm -hmm. from everything man makes in this period of his career, uh, that they have to bring Luca down the right way with a detailed uh, investigation that will occupy the rest of the series. Um, for a pilot that has to lay down a ton of groundwork, and I'm, I'm shocked by how much like plot and character introduction is crammed into this episode. I'm also kind of struck for me how much this pilot feels like it just runs on like pure energy and adrenaline from the start. Um, I'm curious, like how it, like coming back to it, Jeff, uh, like mm-hmm. how does that opening sequence hit? It actually hit really hard for me watching it again. Now, I watched this show, I think, unlike you guys. I watched it at the time, in real time, was psyched for it because of Miami Vice, and watched it the night that it that it aired. And by the way, I'm sure you have this factoid somewhere, but 30 million people watched that episode that night. And I did some comparison, and uh, let's see, the Lost finale had um, 24 million viewers. 
So the perspective there was a shit ton of people watched Crime Story. So it really was like man at his at his TV peak, I guess, um, riding high because Miami Vice was still peaking itself. Um, and so, yeah, I went into that episode at the time, super excited, was not let down at all. And all these decades later, it's like a great little Abel Ferrara movie, you know? Yeah. Right, Danny. Um Minus profanity and and like really gruesome, uh, you know, violence or Harvey Keitel nudity. But we still mm-hmm. get uh, the shotgun to the face from uh, yeah, for King of New York. Uh, the the thing that that noticed that I uh, noticed right away was how fucking great David Caruso is. I mean, it reminded me of like a, a young De Niro in Mean Streets, like just sort of barely hinged character who you kind of can't take your eyes off. He's of. incredible in this. Like I was really kind of floored by just how shocked I was at like. And, and he's like not the only good performance in this by any stretch. No. But I was like, he was right. incredibly striking and it makes you understand why there was this David Caruso period between the very late eighties and the mid nineties, like why they kept trying to make him a thing because there was something there. There was a sure. thing. Yeah. I think we've, I think Alex, you and I have talked about this, but like uh, Proof of Life is a movie that I think is a perfect example of like filmmakers understanding Crusoe's talents and oh, limitations yeah. and like leaning into it. But like, I think this, like this, the sorts of small roles he's getting here at the start, I think also show him in a really flattering light because he is so good at, it is, it's, it's tough to put my finger on, but like he's charismatic, but there's this like, unsettling quality to like his energy. Um, mm-hmm. He's, he's all like nervous movement and energy and like insincerity. I think it's, it's the thing that like, he's that friend. You feel like a night out with that guy could always go in <laughs> any fucking direction. And that's not a good thing. You realize with time. No, it's like you sucked all the ska out of Danny Elfman and replaced it with pure avarice. <laughs> like that is that is his energy throughout this. Like he is just this incredibly menacing, but very, like you said, very charismatic character. And like, yeah, you don't know what he's going to do and you know it's going to end up bad for him. But like, it's not one of those things where the foregone conclusion makes it less captivating because you are very like I was honestly hoping that I would get more of him throughout the mm-hmm. series. And I knew that was not destined to happen, but I was like, I was genuinely kind of sad when they finally offed him. Um, I do. You also mentioned uh, this movie sort of lacking the swearing. And I do think this is one of the things working against the series a little bit. This, this series needs some need, needs some swearing. It, it needs, needs some, some parental bombs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, because I think right at the start where, um, Apparently, like they like Michael Mann paid Del Shannon to re-record a like slightly modified arrangement of Runaway uh, that is is noticeably like punchy, mm-hmm. uh, and like ends that ends up being the theme the theme song for the show, but also it, it is the accompaniment to this opening heist, um, which is just like all action intensity, but. The good and bad live side by side here because, you know, it opens with uh, the crooks <laughs> kind of blow it. Their getaway driver, uh, John Santucci, flees the scene. Um, and so it ends up being a hostage situation. And we get like Torello arriving like the angel of death on this like rainy Chicago street, just like 
head to toe, like black hat, black trench coat. Um, and basically like, you know, we, we get, I, I, I clipped this and put it on Twitter as, as, as they make the deal, let these guys go. Um, give him a car, you know, ride to the airport and everything. As they're getting the car with their last hostages, he sort of goes up to them and gives this really terrifically delivered threat, uh, which is, you know, if you hurt any of these people, I'm going to find what you love and I'm going to kill it. And it's an incredible, <laughs> it's an incredible like character establishing beat. But the thing that's right before it sucks, which is when, he goes out, he's calling back to the criminals when they're barricaded inside the restaurant. And he's like, listen here, you dummies. And this happens throughout this script where like, there's moments mm-hmm. where like, you know, on the original page, there is some foul shit being written out for what these characters <laughs> would say to each other. And it always has to be softened into like substitute teacher, like strong language in a way that's just consistently awful. It's bad, and it, honest to God, it feels like it should be overdubbed. Like the like the actor should have just said the words, and then they ADR it later for you know the the TV version because that's that's how jarring it comes off. Right, he uh, uh, Torello call, uses the word goofs a lot. He calls these guys goofs, which apparently you know, the Chicago yeah. cops love to say that. Right. <laughs> well, it gives him like this kind of homeroom teacher vibe like, for like the entire first season where it's just kind of like he's actually just this really soft kind of guy who just happens to be a hard ass cop. Then it's just like, what? It doesn't yeah, feel it, right. It is. It is. Consta- and, it, and it is worse with him. Like, yeah, uh, it is most noticeable with his lines. Now that you mention it, like. And I think maybe it's because his counterpart, Luca, throughout a lot of this, the mafiosi in the show always make this outward show being like cool, calm and collected. That's their like whole brand. Uh, And so they don't get heated in quite that same way. Uh, But like, yeah, it is consistently Farina who is getting in people's faces and like calling them out and like using what should be like really vicious uh you know epithets against them and each time it has to be like goofball Mm -hmm. uh you know like it's got to become that and it's it's always really jarring uh which is too bad because i think other than that it's a it's a pretty great performance i mean it should be right like up until a few years before this series is is shot this was Farina's job. Like this is the this is the weird thing is Farina like was a career detective with the Chicago Police for like eighteen years and like went to in, in, like an elite detective unit uh, as part of that career. And so it's also very weird watching this where like I this show I think pretty much from the start and then escalating throughout certainly is portraying Torello as like, not just a cop on the edge, but like a cop pretty far beyond the edge frequently. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's just part of it. And you're, and, and I'm always kind of left wondering like to what degree is like Farina just channeling the shit he saw and was a part of in his, in his career, right? Like to what degree, I mean, man has roots in Chicago in this period as well. Um, And like the overlap between this and thief is huge. So much of the series, I'm, I'm I'm sitting there like kind of looking at it like 
is this basically how like all the cops and criminals Santucci is there as well, who are involved in like producing this. Um, is this basically how they see the landscape of the Chicago underworld uh, in, in this era? Well, yeah. And the other thing is that like, there's a part in the very beginning and like when he's having negotiating with those hostage takers where, you know, he kind of goes off on a rant about like, you know, I make like what 22 a year or something, you know, I'm just a pension guy. Like I don't have the ability to just get you a million dollars or whatever it is you're asking for. And it kind of feels like that starts to be a mission statement. Like this notion of like, you know, I'm this very put upon sit, you know, basically a city worker that, Mm -hmm. you know, is essentially representing the law but on a, in a lot of ways, I am not that different from the people that are doing these crimes because I am essentially, you know, what I'm I am kind of representing the people who are allowed to do the fucked up things in the background and do, you know, the sort of like the the, the crimes that are accepted by society and governments, whereas the criminals are kind of on just, you know, they're just trying to get their own piece of it outside the lines but the show never fully goes for that. Like it it wants to represent Farina's character as very much like this, like you said, like a loose cannon, like someone who's very much on the edge. But they never quite go all the way in the notion of like how similar is Torello to Luca. You know, like they never really kind of find a way to meld that idea, which I maybe that's just not what they were going for. But it felt like it, at least in this pilot episode they were laying down some groundwork for something like that. I would totally agree. Yeah. I think that, I think that, that, you know, the, they're just flip sides of the same guy is it's there, but it isn't a hundred percent developed, but Torello, you know, he's really like kind of an asshole throughout the whole show. Like there isn't, there is hardly a person that he doesn't rough up in one way or the other, like often for barely any reason whatsoever. I mean, he's pushing like waiters, he pushes valets, like he doesn't give a shit who he's going to rough up. I mean, and what you said about him, you know, um, channeling his real life experience. And I often wondered like, did the producers or anybody on set have to go like, dude, like, Stop grabbing everybody by the collar. You don't have to do this all the time in every scene. Well, one of the series creators, like Chuck Adamson, right? He was also a Chicago cop. Yeah. And like one of the like, he's also kind of like generating the story ideas and the scripts for this. And like he and man like are there sort of writing about like the landscape of Chicago crime as they understood it. And so I think it's a really interesting like. If you compare it to cop shows of the 90s, uh, and really these shows still exist broadly, right? Like, um, Mm -hmm. they absolutely do, yeah. The uh, what is it, Blue Bloods and shit like that, where it's like, Mm -hmm. yeah, really sentimental, like visions of like hyper competent cops who it's a hard job, etc. etc. Um, I don't know that I would say this like doesn't end up still falling into some like it's, it's still, you know. It's Michael Mann, right? It can't help but romanticize like some of what it's doing. Uh, but there's a lot of moments here where Farina and his band of cops um, seem kind of out of control. Um, and not just in terms of like police misconduct, but um, I think of like how often in The Wire, for instance, uh, like Bunk and McNulty just getting shithouse drunk. Uh, and then just like driving off into the night is just like part of their routine. 
Torello's entire unit of like elite cops feels to have the same energy, right? Mm-hmm. Like the, the, these are guys who are like, the, oh yeah, the rules are for little people. Like they're for rules are for other people. We get to like get pissed drunk and like throw people around. Um, that's our due. Yeah, I mean, there's that episode uh, where they end up in, I think, Iowa. Yes. And they, they're they there to pick up one of the criminals. And, like, you know, the, the town's, like, stoked. They're like, we're going to give you the key to the city. They go to this bar, and inside of five minutes, they have completely <laughs> trashed the place. Like, just gotten into the dumbest barroom bla- brawl you've ever seen in your life. Like, they just clearly do not give right. a fuck. Right. And is then they're the laughing about it afterwards. Where they run off with the mayor's wife? Or is yes, yes, one of them yes. fucks the mayor's wife. That happens. Yes. <laughs> but see, I really uh, couldn't remember. I'm like, wait, was that the time? Because there are so many times where they are, like, just completely, like, you know, like, out of control. Way out of pocket. Uh, I think to the point of, like, so I think... Man does want, like, he likes this idea of parallels, right? And I think mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. one of the things that I was sort of stunned at in this is, like, we already talked about, like, certain themes get repeated throughout Man's work. But, like, as a series, Crime Story is a test bed for a bunch of, like, specific beats. There are literal scenes out. that you will see or already have seen yeah. in other things and will see in things coming up. Mm-hmm. I love when um, we bring out the, the like the the magnesium like yeah. you know mm-hmm. torch lamp, and I'm just like I'm like oh yeah I've seen this scene he before. He loves this. <laughs> I I also but I just have to. So, how are you going to like man? Only in Chicago, baby. This is a Chicago ass TV series. We are going to rob the Field Museum. Uh, it's like it's like in the town where the thing that they're going to rob is Fenway Park because, yeah. like, mm-hmm. how, oh man, what are you going to rob in Boston? Like, people know uh, a Dunkin' Donuts or Fenway Park. <laughs> it's basically got to be one or the other. Uh, yeah, so we get the exterior shot of like David Crusoe being like figured out how to rob the Field Museum, and then we get. Insert shots of them using a little burn bar on a little set to 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 car to carve in there, um, and that kind of like it's sort of retreading this ground, but in a lot of ways, like Caruso's character ends up maybe being more like what James Khan's character is in Thief. He's the one who like takes umbrage at the fact that like he kind of gets screwed on the back end of this deal. Luca, I mm-hmm. feel like he ends up being like if a character like that who had the chops to be a skilled thief, but just sort of embraces the role of management and like ownership of other people's labor. That's kind of Luca. But the minute that happens, he's moving out of opposition to Torella. That's not really like what that's not the conflict in a lot of ways. It, it is becoming then one where it's not just that they're opposite sides of the law. Um, the way that like uh, Hannah and Macaulay are in Heat, where like the same, like you can see the same mirrors, same drives are like mir- like the 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 values of the two men kind of mirror each other in a lot of ways. Here, Trello and Luca, like it's a profoundly different, it's a profound difference in worldview as well, and you can kind of see it when they're making that deal with John Polito, trying to fence the goods from the Field Museum heist. And he's screwing them on the points. He's screwing them on the on the rate he will pay them for the goods. And 
he kind of he gets real with Luca and tells him this is how it works. And if you're smart, you will accept this role. You will like, you know, you will do business this way. And in fact, you'll be more like me and like turn these guys into your employees. And Luca takes that deal. Whereas in Thief, this exact conversation ends in like everybody getting killed Uh, here. It's like, well, what if instead of that, he'd been like, fuck yeah, sign me up for the real estate deal and uh, the citywide lockout of um, like unauthorized uh, heists. Yeah, that's that's kind of what happens here. Yeah, I mean, it's they don't they don't give you a lot of what Luca was before the events of this take place. So you're kind of left to kind of guess at like what his motivations are until he just kind of flatly states them, which is that he wants to move up. He wants to get beyond just doing street scores and, you know, kind of petty hood shit. And he wants to find his way into the real upper echelons of organized crime. And, you know, it, it's it's understandable in the way that it is it is portrayed. You know, like he sees an opportunity and he takes it. And I think having Caruso's character there to sort of be the antithesis of that and be the sort of person that doesn't want that gives you a little bit to kind of work with there because really in the pilot, Luca is very much a blank slate. Like he is a guy that seems like he wants to move up, but beyond that, we don't really know his life. We don't know his character that well. Whereas with, you know, Torello, even though they don't show you a lot of what Torello's life was, just Dennis Farina's energy communicates all of that. Like you understand what that guy's vibe is in the first five minutes of the episode. And it's just, it's all portrayed there. Whereas Luca, you're kind of left for the remaining episodes to flesh that out a little bit. And they never fully do, but you at least mm-hmm. get a better sense of what that character is and what drives him. And it turns out what a lot of what drives him is just, I want to be the biggest and most powerful person. That's it. Right. And Torello, you know, never, never gives him that kind of satisfaction at all. I mean, Torello's always yeah. calling him a two bit punk um, all the way up till the end of the series. You know, he never gives him that satisfaction, which, you know, gets to Luca. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Abrams does the same thing or, or treats Luca the same way. Yeah. 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 I think um, there, there's an interesting element of like uh, generational turnover here as well. It becomes more of a theme uh, as the series goes along, but it's also a theme in a lot of like mob movies from this period too. Right. Which I mean, I guess literally in the headlines, similar things were were happening right like i mean you have the uh what is it the the, the rise of john gotti in, in a lot of ways is like a genera a really violent generational turnover uh and also like a different approach to to like you know being this type of character um but this is something that like the show is interested in exploring and, and it's trying to the ambition here is really something because i don't think it wasn't until toward the end of this pilot when Manny Weisberg is introduced that I was like, oh, fuck. They, like, he doesn't just want to, like, make Thief, but larger as a series. He wants to make The Godfather, too, but a series. Yeah. And through that character, I think he, in places he damn near succeeds uh, in that he sees, like, there are guys like Bartoli who are kind of simple-minded criminals in a lot of ways in terms of like what their scheme is like kind of keeping it together by brute force they're medium um, talent 
Yeah. <laughs> and really, they're like coasting on their laurels from like back in the day. And then there's kind of like your visionaries or faux visionaries like like Weisberg who just want to be American businessmen. They genuinely do. And that's what Luca wants as well. But that motivation, I don't think, comes clear until his like apprenticeship under Weisberg begins to pick up. But like in the scene with uh, with, with Bartoli, he's much more in the like the henchman mold. Like you don't fully sense the extent of his ambitions, uh, in part because like he's not showing them. Uh, right. And I, I, I'm I can't figure out like is it a good performance? I can never I mean, figure Luca? out if I if I genuinely think is Luca a mm. good performance or is it just like a memorable one? Like is he kind of coasting by on a smirk and a pompadour? You know, I don't know if I have a firm answer for that either. I think there are good scenes and there are good moments for the character throughout, like kind of peppered throughout. But I don't know if they ever find a way to completely clarify that character, both the actor and the writing. Yeah. And yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I think I don't think I'm going to hold on to Ray Luca or Anthony Dennison's performance in six eight months time like right that will that will that will have faded from memory in a significant way where even like bill smitrovich's performance like i think will still like have a lingering like you know impression um, i have a i have a more significant impression of both paulie right. and <laughs> motherfucking andrew dice clay right who maybe yes. gives his best performance anywhere in this <laughs> absolutely he's consistently great for all two seasons it's amazing you you keep waiting for the Andrew Dice Clay thing to come out, and it never does. He keeps he gives a restrained performance throughout. But it's interesting hearing you guys talk about Luca and the the underwhelmingness of him because, in my mind, over these decades, he was one of the great TV villains. Like that's how it was built up in my head from having watched it at the time was the, and that clash between Torello and him. But on the rewatch. I totally agree with you guys. He isn't as memorable. And I was trying to figure out for myself why why it is that I felt that way. I think it's it's strictly because in those days there wasn't like a season long villain or a two season long villain. Yeah. That thing just kind of didn't exist. So just by the nature of what the character was, he was memorable to me. But in fact, Anthony Dennison, I mean, to be fair to him, he's not given a lot to work with. You know, like like you said, we never get much of his backstory at all. We don't know why. The, what is making this guy tick? Yeah, like very. It, it wasn't until like I guess midway through season one where I was just kind of like had more of the, the impression than oh Ray Luca is just kind of a petulant kid. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. And like yeah, he's, just like, he's, he's a petulant kid who's become violent out of greed. Like okay, um, but then like you know kind of gets a little bit more you know depth and shape to him, but. Like until then, it's just very just kind of like, mm-hmm, yeah, all right. I, I think until they get to Vegas, like I just don't think there's a lot to work with there. It's just very much it's more about his rise than him as a person. And then once they finally get to Vegas and they can kind of like both offer him the red carpet and then pull the rug out from under him, they are able to kind of get a little bit more out of both that performance and that character. But even still, like I think, I think even at the the height of of Ray Luca's you know moments in that series, it feels like Denison is sort of struggling a little bit to kind of get more out of it than maybe like what the show is able to offer him. 
it doesn't help that I think he's consistently opposite more gifted character actors. Yes. Um, yeah. so like, like being next to John Polito is unfair. Yeah, yes. like well, and John Polito, you know, Bartoli is a more complicated character in a lot of ways and like is given more to do in scene to scene. So like you know, you get a more competent actor, you know, more seasoned actor in a role where they have more to do. They're going to do more around you. Yeah, it's it's kind of like with with Polito's performance. Um, and like if you haven't watched the series, you don't know if Polito doesn't immediately like you know, the image doesn't spring to mind. If you've ever seen Miller's Crossing, Polito is the guy giving the speech at the start of that. And he's playing a very similar character, a like mobster who is just just want to take that one to enjoy the power and privilege, but not necessarily. Uh, he's a more ambitious character in Miller's Crossing. He's the guy who like is trying to rise up in the world, but like there, there's kind of a similar underlying sense and of this belief that this is actually a very structured world with clear rules. And I think Polito brings that mm-hmm. to both performances and with Phil, like in every scene, you can sense a mix of like genuinely like sort of enjoying the idea of being a mentor to Luca before he starts to realize like, how dangerous Luca might be, how ambitious he might be. Also being a guy who like he's greedy, but kind of lazy and cowardly. Like he, he like he doesn't want to work for the money anymore. He really doesn't. Like I think there's a scene. He just later wants to where enjoy it. He just wants to buy new cars. The scene in the car where his delight at like buying a new convertible. It is such a memorable scene. Yeah. Yeah, and like nothing Luca can do, like or is given to do, can can quite match that. And I think also Santucci, in his way, just has a weird like mm-hmm. charisma yes. to him that I can't like. Polly is so fucking weird. <laughs> Santucci's weird, and it's weirder by the fact that like by all accounts, this is one of the most skilled thieves in like America in the 19 like 40s and like in the 1950s uh into like the 70s uh just a ridiculously like uh brilliant thief um who like is now He's also a, just a weird guy. He's yeah, just yeah. a weird guy. And kind of a dumb guy. Yeah. They, they, I mean yeah. they go out of their way to to say over and well, over we hear it and in fact that ends up being don't call him kind dummy. of the exactly don't call, don't him call him dummy. You know what you know what happens. But uh, everyone does. And then there's also Ted Levine as well. You've yes. got uh, Frank Holman. So, yeah, so Luca's really surrounded by these incredible character actors who are who are playing over the top th- throughout the series. Man, Ted Levine is, yeah, again, such a, such a strong character. I think maybe this is the – another aspect of um, – I, I guess – what's the way to put it? Um, I feel like – Maybe in a different era of TV, there's more space for for weird dudes. Um, but like, they're pretty high on their weird, weird dude quotient for network TV in the eighties. I, I was gonna That's say, thing. I f- like, I feel like you know now we would like kind of almost give them the show, but like they really do kind of have a good portion of the show unto themselves mm-hmm. as is. Um, which like, thank God, like they're so incredible when, whenever they're on screen. It's just hard to imagine from that era of television a show like this where it is almost entirely middle-aged dudes, most of which are not hot 
Like, if I'm just being completely honest here, like I the, like Dennis Farina is a handsome guy. There's plenty of handsome dudes in the show, but it's like putting all those faces at the forefront of this big new show. And I'm just going to say in that pilot, at least the amount of fucking makeup they caked Dennis <laughs> Farina and Bill Smitrovich in is just like you could tell someone was uncomfortable with having these be the leads of this show. Well, it's so funny because you get like Bill Campbell, you know, who could go on to be like the Rocketeer. And yeah. Like, and he's just like, you know, off back in the, you know, he's the young, the young new guy kind of deal. Like, and it's like, wait, but he's the one that's conventionally fuckable. And he doesn't even really get any major scenes in this show until no. like halfway through the first season. Not at all. Right, but the women always comment on him. They're, they're always oh, yes. pointing him out. Oh, he he will take him. Mm-hmm. He's the hot one. But even there, it's often in a well. He's young and wet behind the ears, right? Yeah, right, it's more right. of a. Even there, it's more of a. Is he hot or is he just look more suggestible and like he might be fun to break in? Like mm-hmm. even there, it's like worldly and earthy in a way that I find kind of entertaining in the way he's sort of objectified. Um. Yeah. Yeah, you're certainly right that, you know, there's not a lot of classic, handsome uh, movie star types here. And especially in in terms of Dennis Freeman, he is kind of handsome, but he's also kind of craggy and, you know, and a little older than than you would expect for a leading man at, at that time. So I, they really did take a chance in in having him lead this series. Well, and I think at times they le- they grow less confident in it because I think there's an abortive move at various points in the series to what if we turn this into the David Abrams show starring a young uh, Stephen Lang, which. All right, let's talk about David Abrams. We have to talk about David. (laughs) Yeah, we do. His character is all over the damn (laughs) place. Yes, he sure is. (laughs) He's established in this pilot as a crusading. Everyone in this show is crusading for something, right? Uh, But he is a crusading public defender. Uh, who, he has a genuinely like fun scene with Torello where Torello just flat out lies on the stand uh, to like get a uh, like to, to get his statement to hold up. And. Like Abrams is offended by it and Torello sort of takes him aside and is like, you seem like a good guy. And I'm explaining to you, this is how the city works. Uh, of course, I lied. Uh, everyone's going to lie. The judge knows I'm lying. All this is all this is fun. But. Also, this show we talked about before, like, is Michael Mann cool? Does Michael uh-huh. Mann think he's cool? I think with David Abrams, we get a strong idea of what Michael Mann thinks is the coolest motherfucker who could possibly walk the earth. I the scene. OK, so this this comes a little after the character's introduction, but the moments when they start to get into the aspect of Abrams where he is hyper cool they had they can't like you said they can't just make him cool he has to be the coolest motherfucker on the planet he has to be down with everyone then in order to establish which later on becomes a theme the idea that david abrams is the is the white guy who gets invited to the cookout they put him in a jazz club (laughs) with miles davis jamming with miles davis which is like trimming the hedges with an industrial grade flamethrower like this he couldn't just be a jazz saxophonist. He has to be on the stage with fucking Miles Davis. I, I was so hoping you were going to bring that up. I really was. Because that scene made me laugh out loud on, on the second viewing. What is Miles Davis even doing there? How did they Nothing, get... Nothing, just playing. <laughs> right. 
I don't even know how they got him to to be there. I mean, he I think he has like one line of dialogue to David Abrams, like you know, like thanks, th- thanks, <laughs> man, with something like that. Good playing. He doesn't you. even. I don't even think he says anything. I think he nods while he's blowing into his trumpet, and that is it. Maybe that's it. yeah. Michael, like the thing is, Michael Mann is just cool enough to like get along with all these people who are un like undeniably cool and they will do things like appear on his show or do guest spots. But every time that they do that, like when he is like repeatedly throughout this, cause they don't know what to do with this character at times. They're like, Hey, David Abrams stopping a public defender and come be a mob lawyer. <laughs> and this is a beat that gets repeated, but yeah, I think it is it here where like, he sort of rebuffs Luca and he's like, now, if you'll excuse me, I feel like I got a ha- hot hand tonight and I'm going back to the yes. back up there with the trio. Uh, and it's just like. It's just I don't I do not know what it is about Steve. Like, I don't think Stephen Lang is this type of actor. I think that's one of the problems is he is a character actor and like him trying to be smooth reads as false in a way that him playing unhinged at various points in his career as a much older, like he becomes like Stephen Abrams. Now Stephen Lang, if you think about him now is like grizzled, scary Marine dude. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. And he's grown that pretty comfortably. He shows up in public enemies as a wizened gunslinger and quietly walks away with that picture. Um, but here the attempt to be like, well, he'll be the heartthrob of the cast. And the attempts just be like, look how cool he is. It just keeps getting uh, more and more and more intense. It's yeah, it just keeps ramping up like they they may, they bring in Pam Greer <laughs> as a love interest, mm-hmm. which I'll, I will say this. Pam Greer's character here is way less put upon than the character that they give her in Miami Vice. Yeah. Like she is a much more mm-hmm. well-rounded person here. But also, it is very clear that, like, they're, again, this is all in, in, in service of trying to make David Abrams the coolest motherfucker who has ever lived and pa- had a law degree. The part where he talks her into bed, I, like, had to just, like, it, it's one of the worst seduction scenes ever put on film, but it's luridly fascinating. <laughs> yes. Where he just begins, he drops his voice, like, three octaves <laughs> and just starts, like, macking on her. It's incredible. It's... Uh, yeah, man, I don't know. Like, I I will say that it's... I think that there are moments with this character that are that do kind of work. I think some of the stuff involving his dad that they get into later, I think mm-hmm. that there is some, some, yeah. some good interplay there and kind of, you know, what the way that it kind of breaks him down later on, which he does get more unhinged as the season, as season two cool. especially rolls along. But yeah, I don't know. Like, I, it's like you said, I think that there is a certain degree of coolness self-insert to this character yeah. with yeah. on the, on the man side of things but i do think that stephen lang makes it interesting at least mm-hmm. it's like you said he's not naturally this kind of person this kind of character but he's clearly giving it his all in a way that i think makes it interesting to watch makes it fun to watch for the most part even as it gets so far out of any realm of believability of an of a single human being like, I still think he kind of makes it work. Yeah, and it's pretty unbelievable from the start. That This time around, I noticed that it's already like the second or third episode when he defends or he works with Torello in Torello's divorce. And this is while he's still a public defender. It's sort of like, well, we have to have a lawyer in the scene. Let's use David Abrams again. 
Like they can't ever decide really, you know, whose side he's on or, 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 you know, he's just too much. There's too much of him every time they need a lawyer. As I think about like well, even like his, his his big signature episode, Abrams for the Defense, mm-hmm. where he is just like, you know, he is so hyper competent at pointing out racialized economic violence and just like, you know, it's almost like a mon like one of the the cool guy montage of him being just this hyper competent public al- lawyer. And it's just like mm, this feels slimy um in some ways. And again, the episode ends with him literally being invited to the cookout. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, That is an episode. We'll we'll talk about it. We talk about the series. I have complicated feelings about that one because I think it's interesting, but but very weird. Yeah. Um, In this, uh, as this goes along, uh, like, so the thing that ends up happening is Caruso, in his anger at being sort of screwed on the deal, goes on this, like, uh, terminal spiral of like, well, I'm going to show, uh, I'm going to show Bartoli by ripping off his jewelry stores. Um, and one of the things I kind of dig here is this kind of like race to figure out what to do with this guy. Um, that like, he's clearly out of control. Uh, Bartoli basically makes very clear that like, Luca's first assignment for stepping up in the world and to prove his loyalty that he's willing to do what it takes to advance in the organization is to kill his buddy, uh, you know, O'Donnell. And Luca doesn't doesn't hesitate to accept it. Um, I think when they actually have the scene where they're sort of driving in the car, uh, when like Luca is like trying to get it squared away, I think that's a really effective scene because I think here. Luca is so convincingly disarming in the scene where he like finally does whack O'Donnell that like, even though I know like Dave Crusoe isn't part of the series, he's going to get killed in this episode. I'm still kind of shocked by it when it, when it happens. Like Luca is so good. I think maybe this is where he's most convincing throughout the, the series is somebody who can put you at ease when you know you should not be. And then predictably, inevitably, just kill you. Yeah, he's like, I mean, I think that is the thing that works is the sense that like he's he is a hothead, but he's not constantly screaming at people. He's not constantly, you know, yelling about all his motivations like he, you know, there is a certain disarming quality to him, like you said. But, you know, I, I think that. Like you said, it was inevitability. This is where it's going to end up. There isn't going to be any more David Caruso. And but I, I think, like you said, the, the scene plays well because the actors involved, I think, just managed to pull like some actual good tension out of it, even though even though you kind of know what's coming. And I, I don't know that there is actually a better Luca moment in the series than at this point. I think it helps that Abel Ferrara. Like, he seems to have a real gift for shooting like Chicago at night in this. Like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure any interior scenes look good at any point in this series, but like in this pilot, um, the night cityscapes are pretty damn dramatic. And and that scene where, uh, you know, Luca sort of talks him into going to that warehouse, uh, you know, near near Lower Wacker, like it's very Goodfellas-esque 
in in some ways like it, you know as he sort of vanishes into his little warehouse and there's sort of the menace over the scene like it, it's hard not to think about uh you know when de niro is trying to get um really wife to you know come on in 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 goodfellas where it's that similar sense of this person who you know and and ostensibly trust you realize like just by virtue of the world you're in might kill you at any time and caruso the realization comes too late yeah Right. Well, this is also really the closest person that Luca kills throughout all the two seasons mm-hmm. of killing, right? This is his actual friend. Clearly, Luca has no problem killing anybody, including the, the president of countries, just point blank. Mm-hmm. But, um, but in, but I think there is some, uh, poignancy even to this one because it, because it's his buddy. Um, the closest you get to him doing something this, uh, ruthless and disgusting is, of course, when he goes after, uh, Polly's wife uh, in season was that season two? No, yeah. that's no, that was toward the end of season. season towards the end of season yeah. one, right? That's right. Um, and of course, in the in the backdrop of this, the MCU like <laughs> kidnaps uh, Bartoli uh, to sort of put the scare in him to have him pull the contract, and he does. But you know, it's it's a great little coda to that as he sort of tells Luca, eh, "Forget about the O'Donnell kid." And the kid's already dead. And, uh, you know, that, that that die is cast. And from there, we have sort of the escalation into their conflict. You have the the MCU sort of building their case against him. Uh, you have the detective who... I think this is the part that's probably the least well laid out in this pilot. It's implied that one of the detectives is already kind of burning out. And, uh, like, in that opening heist, after everything calms down... You see him unloading a shotgun into the side of a door um, because he's just frustrated. Uh, You don't when that character is just kind of unceremoniously killed uh, while while tailing Luca. um, It's this like it's it's supposed to be like this really shocking moment for the squad. I don't know. It didn't land for me. Like it felt like such a formulaic uh, like plot beat right down to Torello visiting the crime scene in the pouring rain while um, Stand By Me plays mm-hmm. where it it just felt like, um, I don't know, sometimes like man's weaker instincts, which is like, uh, you know, just in terms of the way he architects scenes and shows is like, you know, sometimes you can just counterfeit uh, an emotional beat uh, just if the shot and the music is right. Yeah, that's a really good point because you were just making me think about the the similar scene. Well, I guess it's not similar. I was thinking about the the first episode of The Shield. Of course, there you've got a, a cop killing a cop. I guess that's what's so shocking there. But uh, somehow it doesn't really land in this. You're right. Um, it just kind of happens. Like, we, well, we have no – we don't know who this cop is who's getting shot. We have no uh, – no sympathy for him yet at this point. So it, it, yeah, it really doesn't land. I think that's kind of the weakness of the early episodes is that they, I think you kind of get it with Farina's character, but there really isn't much emotional investment in the cop characters early on. Like it's yes, you understand that Torello is upset and tortured by the fact that, you know, this, this kid from around the way eventually gets killed by Luca and you kind of understand what brings him to that breaking point. But everyone else on the squad is just kind of there for a while. Yeah. Like even Bill Smitrovich, who you can, you know, I, I gets more to do as time goes on. 
like a lot of those guys just feel like they are background fodder. They are there just to kind of be the the big dudes holding shotguns in in semi cheap suits. And it isn't until later, like much later, when they start giving them at least a little bit of a window into who those guys are. Well, it's also, but even that, it's it's always that kind of a remove. Yeah, I mean, what mm-hmm. is interesting, like with the pilot, the pilot just feels so full and chaotic that like it doesn't feel like there really is room to like yeah really develop out these characters so like i mean yeah like it does feel like you know man knows there needs to be this emotional beat <laughs> and so he's like well we just kill the cop and we play stand by me and terrell will be there in the rain it'll be it'll work we can you know fake it till we make it um but just because like there's no el- there's no room to put in what's necessary to make that scene organically work but like we need to have it because the screenplay rules say we have to have it um and like a lot of the rest like the the earlier episodes all still feel like they're too kind of frenetically packed full of stuff to really like let anyone have like like no one gets the episode where it's like oh this is like you know you know, Bill Smitrovitz gets the episode when it's like Gary Sinise shows up with the wife in the iron lung. And then he kind of gets to have room to breathe as a character for an entire episode. Mm-hmm. But no one no one gets those episodes the way we kind of have them now and expect them now where it's we're going to focus on this member of the ensemble this week. Yeah. One thing that really frustrated me uh, watching this time around was that they have 22 episodes <laughs> and yet it still feels too fast paced. Uh-huh. for for what they're doing like he he's he's running Las Vegas way too soon for what they've developed and yet they had 22 episodes so what did they do with all that time there's like an offhand line toward the end of season 1 where they're like over the last 2 years we've been going after you know Luca or whatever and i think that that, that period is like between 1962 and 1964 it is somehow both it feels incredibly rushed to get there and also like they are taking way too much time through certain aspects of the story. Like they are just lingering in places where there is not enough drama to be mined from those places. Like specifically the whole is Torello going to get busted for being a crooked cop, even though he very clearly is not crooked in the way that he is being accused of. Like that is like a multi episode arc that probably didn't need to be more than two. Yeah. Yeah, that like it builds this pivotal thing in in season one where it's like this is a this case is the flimsiest thing in the history of courtroom dramas. Like he's he's gonna be fine. Uh, I think also where this stuff really shows up, like where the pacing problems and the inability to know like how much space or not or or how much space to grant or take away from a story. Uh, <laughs> here we see one of uh, man's few attempts at portraying a marriage. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Like, there are, and the thing is, there are parts of this that work well. By and large, his solution to solving this problem, though, is to have the character and quality of that marriage change radically scene to scene, and then eventually just implode to get, <laughs> sorry, no no place for women in an obsessive tale of an Ahab-like uh, pursuit of a white whale. You gotta, gotta get her off the stage. But like, even in this first episode, we open with the, you know, Torello, you know, li- like works the streets, he lives a life of violence, but he goes home and he's got this like strong, sexy marriage. And then in the same episode, and I think this is, by the way, I think this is a beautiful beat. He goes, he's late to a cousin's reception, and he sees his wife dancing with uh, with, with another man, <laughs> and feels this, like, wave of jealousy. 
And it sends him on a bender. He doesn't even go to the reception. And he's out all night. And he comes home late and his wife's waiting up for him, I think, or or she comes in late. But either way, they have this conversation that's like a like it's it, 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 it's a blow up uh, in, in their apartment. And there's a beat like it's a small thing, but it cracked me up is when he's doing that. Well, who was that man you were all over? And she was like, it was your cousin, you know, dickhead. It's your little cousin. And he just he brings him up short. and He's like, little Tommy. That was little cousin Tom, like just completely stopped dead as he realizes, like, this is absurd. This whole thing is absurd. Like he has been jealous of probably like a very, uh, like a very young kid in his family uh, who is, she even says like, of course he was, what is it? Of course he was horny at his age. You could show him a picture of like, uh, like, like a, a, oh God, what's, what is the exact line? It's killing me uh, here. It's really good. Uh, I want to say it was like a golden retriever uh, and he would, he would pitch a tent, uh, but it's something like that. And like, and they sort of end up like making up at that scene and kind of laughing the the, the thing off a, a little bit, but you, you can sense those cracks are there. And there's moments, there are moments throughout where like occasionally you get a decent portrayal of a tense, but fundamentally like, uh, strong or or at least conceivable marriage, and then there's places where it's like they turn into puppets that have to conduct plot beats just to move the story along. Yeah, it's weird because in in a way, it's kind of shades of the Crockett thing, where it's like you know clearly the life that that Farina is living is not conducive to a healthy marriage, but the way they go about disposing of it eventually. With just sort of the one, the whole bit with the tables should have been two scenes and somehow spreads across <laughs> multiple episodes. And then the whole thing with the miscarriage and her deciding that she's going to go get her own version of Ralph from Heat uh, for a while. And they literally do the TV scene from Heat where he walks out with the TV and then kicks it out of his car. It feels very abrupt. Like they just at somewhere along the way. So the studio said this marriage thing is not interesting enough. Jettison it. And so they do. And then they spend several episodes trying to find a way to get another love interest for Dennis Farina, but never quite get there. But the other thing is, like, I also wouldn't be surprised if this was actually built in because this is a recurring theme with with Michael Mann. The idea of the complicated, extremely focused men who 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 women are only a complicating factor in their lives, which is a really interesting thing when you consider the fact that man has been happily married for over 40 years and never divorced. I thought I so just, either he, I was just thinking how many divorces out. have Michael Mann had. And then I was like, wait, no, he's never had a divorce. No, he's been married for like 40 <laughs> years happily by all accounts. So is, is he getting some stuff out that is making his marriage better by by proxy? Or does he just know a lot of dudes who had a real shitty time in relationships? Why not both? Could be. That's like it is fucking me up that like he like all his movies have this beat. And meanwhile, he's a wife guy or he's a total wife wife guy. guy. Well, that's interesting, too, because like most of the most of it is the wives like removing themselves from the situation. You know, like especially in this, it's she has the miscarriage and she's just like, you need to go away. And then she never goes back into the relationship, you know, kind of from, you know, Torello's point of view. It's just 
she just kind of leaves and then immediately kind of, you know, tries to check back in. It doesn't work. And then she's just like, no, I'm out. Yeah. I do think that scene in the restaurant, which is like the last one they have together. And she's just like, when can you come get your clothes? Mm -hmm. That is the only part of that, that whole sequence that I feel like a hundred percent works. Like that is, yes, this is a clean break. It is understandable now that these characters are here and this is not going to be repairable. So, and I I feel like they get a good bit out of that. I did like her reaction to the vacation though. Like I gotta, I gotta say, I thought that was really well handled where, you know, oh, he's like having a tantrum because his perfect little plan didn't go according to plan. And she's like just trying to live through it mm-hmm. and he can't. And it's just like, you're fucking it up for me. Stop. And she's like trying to be a trooper, but <laughs> he just keeps making it worse. And I, but, I, but I think that that escalates to, I think literally like two scenes later, she's like, by the way, I've been having an affair. Yep. And this yeah, guy's it's not long like, after that. And it's like, there's a lot of things that are just sort of, coming thick and fast in terms of plot developments that also sort of recontextualize what just happened. And so, yeah, it's like, it it's all this point of like the overall plotting for the series and the way it's laid out seems tricky uh, and inconsistent, but kind of makes sense because I feel like there weren't shows like this. Like they didn't, did they know how to make show like watching crime story? Now I am stunned to the degree uh, that every episode follows on the next. Um, like Yeah, even like the oh, bucket yeah. episodes, there's <clears throat> still enough of the main th- plot thread in there to still feel like it, there's connective tissue missing if you don't watch them. Yeah, I don't... I- I don't know if I could emphasize enough like how strange that was at the time and how exciting it was at the time. You know, all those to be continueds at the end, that really didn't happen on any other show other than soap operas, right? But for nighttime TV to have a weekly thing like that. And, you know, don't forget, this is like pre-TiVo. So you kind of had to be there. I mean, we had VHS tapes and we could program it for the hour. But if you missed it, you were fucked. And there was no like online site where you could go catch up on episodes you missed. So it really was kind of appointment TV. You really needed to be there to see what was going to happen between Torello and Luca next. Well, even TV shows that I think sort of follow in its uh, footsteps, like you like The Shield is a show I think I thought about a lot watching Crime Story. Um, <clears throat> the Shield has overarching plots, but like a lot of shows in that uh, in that vein still does a number of episodes that almost stand by themselves. Like the plot advances minutely along the track while like the whole cast is engaged with a ma- a major case that week or or a major event. Crime Story does stuff like that a little bit, but like not to the same extent. Like Crime Story for the most part, it's like episode after episode. The recaps themselves are just nuts where it's Some like, of them are like three minutes long, <laughs> yeah. man. Because you have it's like, yeah, it is like What's because that? the web doesn't exist, they got to do their own plot synopsis. I kept thinking I was watching a clip show. Yes, because there I was, was like, was because minutes, there's a clip show. I actually there, was yeah, there, watching clip show. There was, but it also the interesting thing about the opening is like, you know, we get like, you know, Chicago, 1963. And then like, we get all the kind of clips like, you know, of like of what happened in the previous episodes. And then it really kind of lets you off right in like, they, like, a, like this almost seamless transition from the moment the, the little recap ends goes right into the first scene of that episode. And it is like kind of like right there at the end of like where it like left off um which is bonkers but like i'm thinking about your 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 point rob about um kind of how like you know 
shows like that that you know came after did the like here's our kind of you know our plot our bigger plot movement episodes and then here's our kind of monster of the week episodes and then sometimes those episodes will have little bits and pieces of just kind of character development or world development or you know small plot beats um but this one it's doing like the crime of the week with the overarching mythology like you know narrative plot line and all of the like character you know and world building moving forward <laughs> incrementally to to the point where it becomes batshit yeah. like yeah. the episode <laughs> where they've got a guy cornered in a standoff with his arsenal of automatic <laughs> weapons and Dennis Farina keeps being like you guys got this i got to go take care of the case over in indiana that episode is maybe the most batshit piece of crime television I can remember watching in in any kind of recent memory because it is it is this incredibly <clears throat> frenetic thing of this guy the guy who plays the police chief on CSI I might point out like Jesus just this Christ, weird yeah. squat character actor <clears throat> like going on a on a weird you know crime spree murder bender also not For the no first reason. one of not the first one of those that has happened in this season either <laughs> but th- so it, he's going on this thing and he takes Lorraine Bracco hostage <laughs> in an apartment and then like you said halfway through the episode Dennis Reno's like fuck I gotta go I gotta go to Indiana for a while mm-hmm. that. That hostage situation is going on for two days. There are people, there are cops that are just sitting there every 20 minutes or so, just like, all right, time to fire more bullets at this apartment. Like, (laughs) the staging of that is complete nonsense. No, it's really funny because, like, the, 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 you know, after the, the two parts, you know, like pilot, uh, I guess it's episode three with the, the, like, schizophrenic, you know, killer. Oh my god, just the worst. The, the guy who does the Max Headroom takeover of the, which, the Chicago TV before, station at the end. A year end. before that actually happened. Uh, which is wait, blowing what? my mind. Yeah. Oh, do you not know about this? The the Chicago, the, the Max Headroom takeover of the Chicago the TV station? Wait, this actually happened? Okay. Yes. So, uh, god, like, yeah, there was a it was like this uh, broadcast signal interruption of during it was Doctor Who in Chicago. Um Hold on. It was in like 87 or 88. It was 87. Um, It's funny because I remember talking about it with my uncle and he was like, oh, yeah, I was watching Doctor Who when that happened. And I was just like, are you fucking kidding? But yeah, someone wearing a Max Hedrum mask just got on there and started talking a bunch of weird stuff. And I think like singing a song and then just disappeared. And I don't think they ever actually found out who did it. Um, Yeah. So November 22nd, 1987. uh, Broadcast two stations were hijacked in an act of broadcast piracy by a video of an unidentified person wearing a Max Headroom mask and costume accompanied by a distorted audio and a corrugated metal panel swiveling in the background to mimic Max Headroom's geometric background effect. Oh my God, um, you're right. This happened after. Yeah, Prime it happened Story. after. Yeah. That. Wow. A year I, after. As soon as this oh, episode God. happened, I was like, I got to check. And I was like, nope, it was after. Weird. Um, but like this episode was really unhinged. And I was like, I was like, I'm like, I'm making notes and I'm like, I'm going to talk about this on the episode because nothing can be possibly more, more unhinged than the guy who shoots up a hair salon and then electrocutes <laughs> a sex worker. And then Dennis Farina goes, ah, the hair dryers, they look like spaceships. He's trying to communicate with aliens. He's going to take over a television network. What? <laughs> And, and again, somehow not even the most unhinged of the unhinged exactly. character episodes. <laughs> is that the second? Is that their first like episode of the main run? Yeah. Uh, yes. It is the, the one that comes right after the, the pilot. pilot. Oof. 
that one should have stayed in the can. That one. Yeah. But you can't because it's all serialized. And so you just got to take the L where it's like, well, shit, our A plot sucks. But here we go. Uh, but yeah, like leaving the standoff to go do other cop shit <laughs> in Gary uh, and then coming back to the standoff to be like, OK, let's kill this guy. <laughs> all right. Let's just... resume our shooting bullets at this apartment building. Like I just it's like, guys, like, are they on shift? Do I some love- other cops come in after 12 hours and be like, all right, I brought my I brought a fresh gun. Let's go. <laughs> and also the brief nod it has toward like Torello. He knows the psychology of these guys. He's like, you wait him out. Like it almost feels like the violence is feeding him. The end of the episode. He's like, all right, here's the plan. We kill the fuck. Out of him. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> I had a couple days to think about it, and I think I have an understanding of how we're going to bring the situation to an end. You guys are going to shoot this shit out of the front, and then I'm going to murder him from behind. (laughs) Oh, my God. Just imagine, like, all the people who had, like, businesses and homes around there. Two days. Two days. Two days. Like the cops, like literally on a timer, the cops are just like, well, it's time to let this guy know we're here and just like unloading. It's great. Uh, um, so the the like culminating action of the pilot again, like um, the like the production values of this pilot in, in places are just like through the roof. I think this department store shootout is like. It's like, wow, like I like it. I know I've been to Marshall Fields a million times growing up around Chicago and everything. It, it, it feels like, yep, that is exactly how it would have looked if like a raging gun battle <laughs> had broken out at like Carson Peary Scott or something, uh, you know, growing up. But the, um, you know, the, the, the way to catch him in the act is, uh, you know, they, they figure out he's going to rip off this, this downtown department store, a stunt that's so, so crazy uh, no one would try it except uh, Luca, and Luca sniffs out that it's that it's a plot. Um, sort of waves off, and a raging gun battle ensues. Um, and while it still features a, a decent number of stuntmen unconvincingly clutching their sides and flinging themselves off the nearest banister, uh, it's still a, a, a pretty spectacular sequence. Uh, and you know, ends with with Torello choosing not to execute um, Luca, but the episode sort of ends with Luca also getting a new mentor, which is Manny Weisberg, a uh, you know, a basically a stand-in for Meyer Lansky, uh, you know, an an old uh, you know an old gangster who's moved into uh, management above management, who's basically become the finance mastermind for organized crime across the country. And he gives, and I think this is the thesis statement. I think this is like what, like how man views Luca. Weisberg gives this speech where he's like, stay off the street. Like the street is for your dumbass criminal, like henchmen and everything. You, you manage, you don't, you don't work effectively. You just take the profit from their work. That's, that's what your, what your mold is. And I think in the man verse, the man moral universe, I think that's the person he consistently hates more than anyone is the guy who's like risk, nothing. Just take the outcome that like the people actually do the work generate. And if you're someone who's attracted to that, cause like the reason we end up on, on con side in thief 
is that when he's offered that deal, it is so morally offensive that he just like initiates this really destructive confrontation because he can't even faint. He can't even play along to get out from under. Like it is so immediately offensive that he's like, I will destroy you and destroy my life to prevent you from getting your hooks into me that way. Luca hears this and he's like, shit, that's what I want to be. That's, that's the dream. Well, it's also juxtaposed with the captain from the MCU whose <clears throat> constant refrain throughout the series is make it go away with work. You know, like mm-hmm. his whole thing is a like, it doesn't matter what's going wrong in your life. Just do the work, be on the ground, do the thing. Don't think about anything else. And that's what's going to carry you forward. Whereas Weisbord's whole thing is like, no, extricate yourself from that shit. Are you kidding me? That's where you die young. That's where you get into trouble. You get where I am. You're just the central point where all the money flows. That's what you want to be. And, you know, I whether or not the people involved in making this show, you know, are siding with one or the other. I don't know that one this really is. That's ever really clarified. I will say it is interesting as time goes on in the series <clears throat> and we get more with Weisborg. And maybe this is the time to talk about this more generally. They move from him kind of being this slightly grandfatherly, you know, kind of interesting presence that's like, you know, kind of guiding him to essentially being Count Dracula of the mob. (laughs) And I mean that in the way that not only is he just menacing and like, you know, getting very scary in a few places, the soundtrack literally turns into organs anytime he (laughs) appears on screen. And it is so over the top that you're just you can't do anything but believe that somewhere fangs are about to shoot out of his mouth. I want to talk about Weisberg, but. We got to talk about the soundtrack. We have to. Like, <laughs> oh, yeah. In my view, and, and Jeff, you were listening to it in its in its original context. You're watching this That's week right. to week. To my ears, it sounds like shit. <laughs> like, I'm watching it, and I'm like, the and it's, it's such a night and day yeah. thing where, like, you have really dramatic scenes playing out, and then just the most bonkers score accompanying it that somehow makes everything feel... Really, I think Alex, you messaged us and you were like, "These are like porno beats well, that they're that they're." Yeah, us it's also weird because this. you know, watching it now, we're watching it at a point where slap bass in a television score is inextricable from Seinfeld. Yes, 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 which is really fucking jarring for this show in particular, um, because we apparently really love slap bass on this score. It's really an unfortunate choice because the period music that's used intermittently um, and more so in the first season is great. Yeah. Um, and every time it and it's often used when great juxtaposition uh, to what's happening in the scene. But for some reason, the decision to use modern instrumentation, especially in those like super dorky, uh, like 80s, like da 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 moments are just just terrible. Uh, and are incredibly dated. Like, I have nothing against Todd Rundgren as a musician in general. Like, he's not my favorite person or anything, but, like, I got nothing against the guy. I think we may have come to this show at a very unfortunate time, which is to say that home synthesizers became very affordable at that point, and a lot of musicians probably just had them lying around. So, you know, in an ep- in a show where you are already spending, like, a million an episode for all this period-specific stuff... Are you going to get a live band in there to do a whole soundtrack or are you going to get Todd Rundgren going do to do to do to do on his fucking Casio? Well, and I think, again, it was made in a different era. 
and this is an unfortunate byproduct of maybe the show being a little bit out of time. On the one hand, if man is left to his own devices in this period, he does have good taste for like what electronic music should sound like. It would like his druthers would be like, fuck it. Let's what's Tangerine Dream up to? Sure. Surely we can get that. Someone get Jan Hammer on the phone. Yeah. But you can't do that. And so he ends up with this like horrific soundtrack uh, that is consistently just an inappropriate guest in every scene. Like it is just constantly. It's it's amazing how wrong the tone, like it's almost on purpose. It feels like it has to be like he is goofing because there are scenes where a guy is just walking down a dark hallway and it sounds like, it sounds like fucking party music. And it's like, what is happening? But if it's made in a different era, I think he probably just like shoots this like with a more like cinema verite like type approach where like there's a lot of scenes where there's musical score and there doesn't need to be no. like, yeah, right. Uh, throughout watching both of these seasons, I kept thinking like, God, if it had just been 10 years later or 20 yeah. years later, right. It would have been a 10 episode season. You would have gotten rid of all the B plots. You would have had a different soundtrack. I mean, this could have been amazing. Like it, it still kind of is for when you factor in what they had to deal with 22 episodes and every other trope of 80s and 70s TV, you know, what they were able to accomplish, the way they were able to push the cop genre forward is still pretty amazing. But just how much better it would have been, even if it was made now, it could be amazing. Yeah, I I want to, I know I've been joking and goofing a lot. I do want to say that I I think that there is One, I completely understand the germ of an idea they had here and how forward thinking that was for television at the time. And I think when this show does hit, the hits are great. Like it feels like something wholly different, uh, certainly than anything I remember from 80s television. But, you know, at the being at the forefront of something like that and being trying to push the medium in a way that maybe was not ready to be pushed, especially from a network primetime TV angle. Mm-hmm. You know, unfortunately, they're brushing up against things that just hinder the entire experience as as the show rolls along. What, right. I, I re- Go ahead. Sorry. No, I was going to say, I, I, I think I saw like season two, they put it up against Moonlighting. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, it was a terrible idea. Um, yeah, they moved it from Friday. It was originally right after Miami Vice, which, of course, is perfect. And they moved it. They they were too cocky and they put it up against Moonlighting and got slaughtered. And part of the, uh, the, the discourse at the time was the problem of having a, a – continuing narrative against a show like Moonlighting. Like that you where what was the jumping on point? That's actually why they ended up having that clip episode. It was like tr- to try to get everybody new up to speed. Um so there was a lot of discussion at the time like well what do we do with this show? How do we get people into it now? We're halfway through. We have this incredibly convoluted plot for the time and how do we get pl- uh viewers up to speed? And that is one thing that I think about is like, you know, watching this like, you know, we really don't watch TV the way we watch TV in the 1986 anymore. Like, you know, we haven't for a while. And like, so watching this, you know, like, you know, I did. I watched this in big chunks when I could fit it in because I'm like, oh, well, I've got 44 episodes of television to watch. Like, let's go. Um, cramming two years of a 22, you know, episode season show into, you know, a month. Um when it is this chaotic and this frenetic and this like so many moving parts and so many characters, like it is a very different 
Uh, like it really like I, I think about like, you know, if I watch this, you know, one episode a week over the span of two years instead, like, would that be a very different experience for me? Um, and would the show land differently even? Um, what if I had time to process one episode or would the time between episodes make me go like, what the fuck did I just watch? Actually, maybe I'm not going to tune in again. Well, right. I mean, like, remember that if if. Tuesday night rolls around and you've never seen an episode before and now they're on episode 10 and you have Moonlighting as an option, which was a great show, of course. Um, what are you going to do? You watch the first few minutes of Crime Story and you have no idea what's going on. It was a really hard sell. Well, and I think even within the show, like sometimes the connective tissue is really shakily put together. Like some like there's a lot of cuts throughout the series that I'm like, did we miss a scene? Because it feels like we just sort of like like a meteor just landed like in the middle of the framed in different... a weird way. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, <clears throat> even the clip show, even there, they do something weird where the clip show has new footage at the end. Right. Like for 38 minutes, it's like, here's clips. And then. They move the ball forward in some really important ways at the very end of their clip show. It's a wild decision because, like, if you've seen it and you remember all this, you're not watching all this. But if you skip a clip show, I just because I remember I remember this coming up the first time like I watched it when it was finally being like aired on uh, a cable channel like 15, 20 years ago. And I remember, like, they did something like this. So I knew there's something in the Clips episode where if you skip it, you'll miss stuff. But, like, what a weird decision where we are going to ded dedicate an entire thing to being a supercut of Torello Lucas scenes. And then at the very end, major developments are going to unfold with Luca's relationship with, like, Bartoli and the mob. And it's just going to come out of nowhere. Yeah, I think they just didn't know what to do with the show. It was this, this, you know, fundamental conflict between the way TV was and what they were trying to do. I mean, and, and this is maybe like why, to an extent, Man ends up being completely devoted to feature films for like the balance of his career at this point. Uh, but starts making moves back towards TV as the medium becomes more interesting to him later. I don't know. I'm, I'm really curious to see Luck because like Luck also reunites him with Farina. Mm -hmm. Um, and so like, I'm, I'm really intrigued, uh, by like, I had no idea, like when, when luck was airing, I wasn't as dedicated to man and I really didn't follow Milch at all. Uh, and now I'm like, that sounds like the most fascinating project ever. So I'm, I'm looking forward to when we get there. Uh, but yeah, in, in context, this is like straining at the edges of its form in such key ways. And I think like typified by the fact that after 15 episodes, they just pull up stakes and they leave their setting, yeah. which I am to me hits me like a gut punch because like one, I'm a Chicago boy. I love Chicago. I think man in this period, like has a really good sense for the city. Um, like for instance, that episode that's about like, <clears throat> race and structural violence in Chicago. It is a little preachy. Uh it's a hammer to the skull, man, but it yeah. yes. But is it but is it by 1986 standards? I just don't know because like 
it is it is shit is an episode of TV that's like you know the you know what maybe you should kill your landlord maybe that's justice. The thing is, I think it is a hammer to the skull even by 1986 standards, but I think it's actually a lot more. It's a lot sharper, and yes. it goes in the right. It goes in directions that like we wouldn't do now, and we wouldn't do for like the intervening 20 years. Right, like I. So the thing is, that episode. First of all, Ving Rhames, uh, like showing up out of left field to like give this really grounded performance as a guy who just like loses it on his landlord after like one thing after another piles up over the course of this horrible day in his slum apartment, um, and gently kicks the guy's ass, uh, and ends up getting an assault beef uh, for it. But like everything about it, from like the way the family is treated at the ER. Um, and interestingly enough, it's the, like the dynamics are the, uh, like the black nurse is the one who's like more skeptical of these folks because she's like inured to it. And it's an idealistic doctor, uh, who is the one who's like, no, I can, I can be a diligent doctor for everybody who comes through the door. Damn. What the, what the damn the insurance. Yeah. Um, but also the thing that hits so hard is, um, like, so their landlord is this Polish immigrant um, who at one point tries to butter up Pam Greer by being like, well, you get it. Like, you're someone who, like, pulled herself up and, like, you understand the value of work and, like, what it takes to succeed. Not like these other people. And the thing is, like, if you grew up around Chicago, like, you know that person. Like, it's like, I'm watching it and I'm like... I know that guy. I know a few versions of that guy, but I know that guy. And like, he is a fixture of Chicago at this point. Not as much now, but like this notion of like, kind of the old conservative, vicious, embittered, like Polish landlord is kind of a fixture of Chicago at this point. And like, it is such a local specific thing that even though it is a hammer to the skull, the way it's presented, I'm also like, shit, uh, (laughs) there's a lot of like keen understanding of time and place here as well. Well, there's also a framing there of, you know, this elderly white immigrant coming to this country and believing that he should be in a better position than the people of color who are, you know, who are citizens of this country. And yeah, it is, it, it, I think that this episode actually has some of the best acting anywhere in the series between Ving Rhames. The guy who plays the racist Polish landlord is a spectacular piece of shit. Uh, Bill Smitrovich. Yeah, Bill Smitrovich has a great bit in this. Mm-hmm. Like, there's a, there's a lot of good performances in this episode, but it is one of the few, like, genuine kind of bucket episodes that is only very loosely tied into the larger thread of the plot. And most of that is just getting more David Abrams in front of people. <laughs> Whenever, whenever David Abrams is not being a crusading attorney, yeah. the audience should be asking, where is, uh, where is, where is my cool jazz lawyer? Yeah. And also like, I, I appreciate also the episode has such a bummer ending. Like it is such a ripping the rug out from under your feet of like, we have the whole like cookout and the whole neighborhood coming together. And then like, this guy finds a different way to fuck with these people and is determined to do so. Not because like. Mostly because, like, he's angry at the injustice that he didn't get to do this to them. And so he's going to find another way to push things. Um, and it ends with, uh, at this point, Ving Rhames defending his wife. Like, literally just pops the guy with, like, a wrench. 
and he's just dead and it ends with this this arrest uh and you sort of guess the rest um but like yeah it's such a preachy scene including a long Stephen lang doing his best gregory pack mm-hmm. um it's and i think maybe this is to the point jeff made up top i think there's a version of this episode that's like a fucking pulitzer winner in the hands of a better sc- like screenwriter but we don't have that here <laughs> And so it ends up just being so heavy handed and so kind of long winded. Yeah. 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 It takes a long way, long way to get there for a a conclusion that is extremely abrupt. And I think the abruptness of it is not necessarily inappropriate, but I just think that a lot of this episode feels like, you know, what you needs to happen like 10 minutes in and they spend 40 minutes getting there. Um, but so that but that for me is my relationship with the Chicago period is like it's all full of sharp details and like yeah. the setting mm-hmm. is so well realized um, and even like the broader Chicago area right the fact that a case moves seamlessly to St Louis or over into Gary like yep that's that's how the region works and that, those are the connections that uh, existed at the time particularly uh, where those those local bonds were were a little stronger and. For me, it always feels like, for me, like crime story at its best is the Chicago show and every like I like and I understand it was baked in that they wanted to do this pivot to Vegas. But I never felt like is Vegas as strong a location for what this series is doing as Chicago was. I think it struggles a little bit to kind of get at the grandeur of Vegas that they're kind of gesturing toward the idea that it is sort of like this, you know, oasis in the desert, which is the thing that, you know, like has been explored in mob stuff many times over. Like Casino is one of my favorite movies, and they they hit some similar beats with that story that Casino eventually goes on to do. And I think a much well, it's based more on the same character, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. so. Mm-hmm. And and I think the problem is in uh, at the television scale they are working at. Even the biggest stuff that they are doing in Vegas feels a little small time. Well, it's interesting because, like, you know, I think about like they don't even really know how to shoot Vegas. No, like, yes, you know, the the show is it's it's really interesting because like the um, it's not a very artful show the way it's filmed like this is not a very artful show, and I think that works really well for telling a mob story in Chicago. Um, but then like, you know, you get to Vegas and they break out the fisheye lens and then they mirror it. And it's just like, yeah. I don't think this is, this is working guys. You you don't quite have the grasp or the money, you know, or really like, you know, we really don't have the chops yet to figure out how to shoot Vegas in the way it needs to be shot to actually convey that. Um, certainly not like in four by three on a television. <laughs> Do you think this is one of those cases where it becomes so just like easy as shit in digital land? Because that's that's always been man's like argument for why he just embraced digital. I think so. And it was it's really interesting because like, you know, one of the things, you know, my, you'll remember my initial complaint with Thief was didn't really feel like it, there are times when it felt like Chicago, but it really didn't have like an, a sense of being grounded in Chicago. And crime story fucking nails it right off from the bat it's like yeah like we are in chicago this feels like chicago there are all these like you know minute details and the you know the shot setups work you know because we're not doing horrible digital color grading for one and also 
you know, this is, you know, you could portray Chicago in just kind of very, you know, workmanlike cinematography. It works. Like, um, but then you go to Vegas and it's just like, we're still shooting, we're shooting Vegas the way we were shooting Chicago, except now the light values are higher and we had to add in a wide angle lens. Um, and it doesn't really work. I feel like the brief for the show does kind of work still, at least in that first season, where, like, they're still interested in, I guess in the same way, like, you know, everyone talks about The Wire as, like, a, a show that has the sociological bent. I think Crime Story does as well, like, most overtly in the episode about, like, the landlord and shit. But, like, throughout, it's this idea of Chicago having its politics, its, like, regions. I think they're doing similar work in Vegas where it's like, where does power reside in Vegas? Um, like what does this expansion look like? Who are the people that would need to be sort of brought to their knees for the mob to pull this off? I think it's still doing that work. I think another thing that's hurting it though is, um, Vegas, I think particularly maybe in this era more than like current Vegas, so much of it is also a series of, um, like what are called like unplaces. Where it's like there's either there's either the big recognizable casinos or then Vegas is kind of this like sprawl that just services those casinos. And there's like not a lot of Chicago's a place of neighborhoods, a place of like really distinctive locales. I don't know. It feels like with Vegas, they're constantly struggling between you either have these really iconic casinos and you will see the signage all the fucking time. Or it's basically stuff that, like, a series of places that feels like VFW halls, right? Uh, like, or in one case, literally like a union too. meeting hall. Yeah. Right. It's not a driving city, right? It's not a it's not a car town. And uh, so much of the early season is, you know, the look of Torello's, you know, 57 Chrysler and Luca's Coupe de Ville. Uh, th- those are amazing scenes, and they're mostly shot at night in, in the dark. So Vegas just really kind of doesn't work for the aesthetic of, of the at least of the early season. In terms of the tenor, um, how does it how does it work for y'all? Be- because like, like Vegas by season two, this show is kind of off the rails. Yes. Uh, yeah. But even but but the pivot to Vegas also still marks some pretty profound shifts for the characters. And I, I'm curious, like once it makes that leap after after Luca blows his literally blows his way out of town by like murdering every single like mob associate he has left in the city and goes to Vegas. Like, I'm curious uh, where you guys end up landing on the pivot. Like, do you think it like do you think it was misguided from the start? To go to Vegas and like tear up a season's worth of of groundwork lying. I don't think it was a mistake. I just don't think it should have been part of season one. You know, it's like yeah. Yeah. there is a there's a good idea here, which is to say that that you know the natural progression of Luca is that he is moved even beyond the confines of where of the city that that brought him you know into power. And he wants to go where the real action is, which is where they are trying to legitimize their businesses in Vegas. But the progression they have to do with Luca over the course of what essentially amounts to like six or seven episodes, it's it's not enough time. Like they 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 have to get him to the place of unraveling in such a short window 
and get basically skip over huge chunks of him building his empire out there. So we get some good scenes throughout that. But the overall story feels like it is just majorly condensed. So he, I have a thought about this because this is, you know, thinking like about like, you know, now we we have television. It, it has done the big, you know, oh, we transplanted the show from one city to another. You know, at the time, we really hadn't had that. And, but now we would do it. We would say, like, OK, at the end of the season that's when they leave and then there's this you know the gap between season is when all that stuff happens and then we pick up you know and they're all in place ready to go in season two in the new location um <laughs> but like you know the, so like well, I was thinking, i'm like what what is the the logic behind this and i'm like is it so that we people had not yet understood that like you know we could do this and that like they felt like they needed narrative connective tissue between the seasons almost. And like, this was like the most they could afford it. And also like, you know, bake into this transition. I don't know, but like watching it, like it was really fascinating to me because we just don't do this anymore. No. And like, I don't think, I can't think of like when we've done this, after this, you know, after crime story, honestly, this is like the only time I can think of like actually encountering such a radical shift before the season ended. And it's unfortunate because they, even in that condensed window, they still find a way to waste time. Like totally. there's, there's the whole bit with uh, the union, like some of the union story is interesting, but it feels like they spend way too much time on, you know, Dr. Chilton and like his, you know, and also leaving from fear as like the evil fucking union guy. Like that whole thing just feels like it was half an episode. They stretched out into a full one. And then there's that whole episode with the 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 justice attorney who's like molesting his daughter, who is Julia Roberts. And it's like none of that really needed to happen anywhere in that stretch of story. And it feels like for the amount of time they have to work out that bit of plot, they they dawdle like a strange amount. Yeah, it's a, it's an incredibly frustrating aspect of the show as a whole. I mean, season two is is all tangents, so you can't mm-hmm. really. But but season season one, it, it it's a really interesting phenomenon of of twenty two episodes that still there's not enough time to tell the story they want to tell. You you really wish they could just do a do over. Yeah, this. There's a fascinating logistics of TV where it's like, I think they have 22 episodes worth of stuff. Usually that's the problem, right? Where it's like, you just don't have the content. I think here they do. Um, and maybe they even have the space to do it, but they can't quite use the space effectively to tell the story. Uh, it's just, it's it's too ambitious a thing they're trying to pull off in one season. And I, I'm... I actually kind of like that the direction the series goes is that Luca is worse than you thought. Like it like it he he is. Um and culminating with like yeah, the fact that he rapes uh like Polly's partner uh in, in all this and his it's part of a context of him like becoming increasingly like lashing out and exulting in the violence he can sort of uh, sort of deal out. Um, 
but at the same time, like even here, it feels like it is such a rapid escalation from who he was in Chicago that like, I, I don't know, like for, for me, it feels like the connective tissue of the show begins to break down uh, once they're in Vegas. And <clears throat> then you guys can sort of fill me in. So season two, like, as, I, as I understand it, they did not know there would be a season two necessarily. Like, Which explains the ending of season one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is wild. Hang on. Actually, someone, someone break down the end of season one because I'm, I'm in the camp that it's genius, but it's, it's out there. But it's genius in the way that only TV writers uncertain that they will get to do another season can be. Which is to say that, okay, so the, the basic gist of it is that Luca, you know, his empire starts crumbling around him because of his own self-inflicted inability to stop doing fucked up shit around around the edges. And, like, it all boils down to, like, Polly turns against him. Polly, you know, is going to rat him, rat him out. They, 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 they arrest him at Pauly, the end of episode the twenty-one. Worst CI in history, just really FYI. bad. From the pilot, has been in the pocket of the MCU, sort of. They kind of forget about him for a while. Yeah, they yeah. forget about that. Yep. <laughs> but then, so like they, so episode twenty-two, the final one of the season, they declare a mistrial like pretty early on. Like there's witness, there's there's jury tampering. They do a whole thing, uh, and they they essentially, you know, they're they're going to have to redeclare their charges. And amid all of that, there is a whole breakdown of Luca's empire. My, Manny is real pissed off. There's another mob guy that's coming in and trying to horn in on his action. And then it culminates in a big shootout where Luca decides he's going to go kill this other mob guy. But then, you know, Torello and the crew are there and he's like chasing Luca through the streets of Vegas, having a big old gun battle that ends with Paul. By the way, at some point, Polly decides, actually, Luca is my best friend. I to hell with this woman that it loves me, despite myself. I'm just going to go back to my guy because I'm, you know, I'm an underling. That's what I have to be. And so he shoots his like he basically rescues Luca from death. He's already been shot twice and like pulls him into a car and then takes him to a safe house, which is at the Yucca Flats nuclear testing facility, where which is in one of those demo houses that they use to show like what kind of destruction can a nuclear bomb do. And as they as they come to realize where they are and they drive away, there's a nuclear explosion. And then they <laughs> use the standard stock footage of like that, like you see for every nuclear explosion. It's amazing. It is so good. I love this actual this the scene in which they like slowly like tease out that like this is an active nuclear test site where like he's like, oh, you see the man because you're like, that's weird. And then Polly's like, oh, yeah, you got a refrigerator full of fresh food and water. And then like he kind of like, you know, and he's like, who are these guys? And they're like, he's like, I, they were here. I don't know why they're here. I just thought I'd leave them for you. Keep your company. And then like, you know, Luca like kind of pushes the seat for it. And then he sees property of like the, the U.S. Department of Energy. Oh, it says ground zero on the chair. Man. Yes. Ground zero. That's right. Stenciled on the chair. And it's just like, and he's like, Paul, what have you done? <laughs> you got to get me out of here. Oh, Polly, you done it again. <laughs> You idiot! You, you dummy! I mean, for for a uh, for a show that that they thought was going to be canceled, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty awesome way to go out, right? Just blow up the bad guys in a nuclear bomb. 
I was reading an interview with Farina and Man as they were start preparing for the second season, and they couldn't stop joking about the first season, kind of like acknowledging that, boy, we sure didn't leave a lot of room for all of this to start off again. But, you know, when we bring back Paul and Luca, they'll be glowing. <laughs> uh, but hey, guess what? We got lots of great plans for you, season two. What of a Russian MiG pilot? Like, love the idea of going to Vegas and starting over in the U.S. It'll be like Ivan does Vegas. And what if David Abrams took up a peyote habit? Oh, God. So, Jeff, I've been, I've been curious to ask, because uh, you, I mean, you and I talked about Crime Story for the first time back when it, like, appeared on Amazon. We were both kind of talking about, like, hey, this is an unusually cool show. People should make time for it. And I just got the impression, like, warts and all, you have some love for Crime Story just as a whole. Oh, absolutely. What do you make of the second season? <laughs> oh, the second season is just fucking god-awful. I mean, it, it's terrible. And I, I uh, of course, what I remember in, what I'd remember over the decade was, was the last three and, of course, how it ends abruptly at the very end. And I've had like, what? what is it, like 25 years to get used to it, 20, 25 years to accept the fact that we're <laughs> never going to find out what happened in that, in that, at the end of that plane crash. And maybe that's a good thing. Maybe that's how it had always had to end was these, the two of them punching each other to death as, as they, you know, plummet. As Paulie goes, oh no. <laughs> oh I no. I did watch that part. I was like, so tell me about this plane crash. And the fact that one, it's like a little bit the opening of uh, The Dark Knight Rises with just like people getting ragdolled around the cabin of this plane. But also the fact that Polly is just like, oh, gee, what am I supposed to do with this crashing airplane? Polly's in the I front having it. like a Keystone Cops moment. It's like. <laughs> yeah, the whole just, scene. Well, he shoots the pilot. He shoots the pilot for calling him a dummy. And then he tries to pull the flight yoke. The flight yoke comes away in his hand. <laughs> what? And then, and then we we kind of we cut back to you know like to Luca and Torello and they're wrestling in the back with the gun and then it cuts back to Polly and Polly's just holding a box with wires coming out of it. <laughs> and it's like what the fuck is Polly doing this time? Does not doesn't Polly have a yoke on his side too? Like what is going on here? Yeah, it, it's a terrible season. And as I was watching it, I I kept reflecting on how much in a way in a weird way it paralleled. Um, Twin Peaks's history of a Ooh. of a, a incredible first season with a cliffhanger, and then a second season that utterly blows it the entire way through and ends on a cliffhanger. Um, you know, I'm the, only going to disagree that I think that there are there are a couple of good episodes in the beginning of season two of Twin Peaks and a couple of good ones at the see, very. I end, think season right. two is brilliant. So I I'm I'm just over here. It was like what? Oh, this is a whole. But other I know podcast. what you mean, but <laughs> the middle of that season is a mess. So I I'm oh I'm yeah, with you. of course it is. <laughs> and the middle of Crime Story season two is an utter mess. Um, yeah. Well, as is the beginning and as is the end. <laughs> and um, uh, yeah, at the time it was it was disappointing. At the time, it's not like twenty twenty hindsight that we realize it was shitty. It was shitty at the time. Um, it was it was particularly shitty because you know we were watching it week to week. That you, again, you don't see Luca for like four episodes. Yeah. There, you know, it sort of hints at it, like you see his silhouette at the end of the first one. So at least that you know he's alive. But the fact that they delay so long getting back to that part of the plot was just a terrible decision at the time. You had. A, that was a month of crime story in which the central conflict is not even part of the plot. 
the um I think there's something the weekly format, from what I can recall, did a really good job of like gaslighting you about whether a show you liked was falling the fuck apart. Mm-hmm. Uh because like it'd be like it was weird, but like it wasn't bad, but like maybe this is going someplace. And a month, two months could go by before you realize, like, wow, this is all like really not turning out to be what I wanted. Whereas like Watching it shotgunned like this, you can just really feel like uh, when the when when the flight yoke of the series yeah. just comes yeah. away in their hands. I think I hated season two less this time because we could speed through it because we yeah. could get back to the good parts. But it was like waiting another week, and then oh god, it's another shitty episode, and then six more days, and then oh god, it, they're still not getting to the good stuff. Well, so it was incredibly frustrating at the time. I think going back, like, and maybe also, you can tell me if this this rings true or true for y'all or not. We were talking about the problem of Luca being like not necessarily the most compelling foil for Torello. I think the other problem that maybe I can see is that the Luca story. Once when I say it's turned into Godfather Two, I'm not kidding. Like genuinely the scale of story they are telling is moving into like Michael Corleone fleeing the collapse of the, like uh, the, the regime in, in Cuba. Uh, like it's, it's escalating to that level of like global sweep. Um, and here, I think the groundwork is laid for that. I think when, Mind you, they're all a bunch of fucking extras on the scenes where, like, the council of the mob meets mm-hmm. uh, to discuss their expansion into Vegas. But, like, for good reasons, Luca is left with nothing to do when Manny Weisberg delivers his big speech about, like, how dare you ingrates question my authority to steer us toward legitimacy. And it is, it's a great scene because it is him at his most condescending, his most vicious. It is a, if you want to see a scene that like just typifies the the way that like the end game for immigrant groups, like seeking power by any means necessary is to become white. Uh, It is Weisberg's like rant to the Dons about like their desire to keep doing criminal shit. Um, and specifically to start dealing drugs. And it isn't just that the money, like he thinks that brings too much heat it is the fury that that work will keep them enmeshed with communities of color. And Manny wants to be done with all of that. He like, they're going to be bored. They're going to be directors of corporations. Now they are going to be legitimate and they're going to be like, white Americans in the like most privileged sense and their, their impulse for doing crimes is fucking that up. And his speech, like Luca has nothing to do in that, but sit no. and watch mm-hmm. for good reasons, because mob stories take on this kind of epic sweep. Um, and I think the, the, the problem the series faces is that like, there's only so much a character like Luca can do and you're kind of left more interested in like the landscape of criminal politics that surrounds him. But their solution to some of this is like, what if Luca just whacks everyone on the way out of Chicago? And it doesn't even make sense because it's like there'd be ramifications for this. 
Well, it's not even just that he whacks everyone on the way out of Chicago. It's that their solution after all that even comes unraveled in Vegas is that, okay, what do we have Luca do? Well, (laughs) what if he went to South America and got involved with the puppet regime there? I don't know what Michael Mann was like his fascination with this stuff was at this time, because, again, Miami Vice also kind of went in that direction. Actually, the thing the thing I would compare this to is Miami Vice season five. Which is to say, it goes so far off the rails from what you actually liked about the show. The bucket episodes are nonsense, and the 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 threaded plots, all the stuff involving the Banana Republic and de- dealing weapons to this you know this unnamed South American country, like it's horseshit. And it's it, it's horseshit not because there isn't potentially an interesting story to be told there. It's that they don't know what that story is. Mm-hmm. They just know that. Yeah, no, America's getting real involved in uh, all these uh, Central and Latin American countries. That's probably a story, right? And it never gets beyond that. Right, it never gets beyond that. They they try to throw in Vietnam even vaguely at one point. Literally, the um, Gulf of Tonkin incident happens yeah, during one of the episodes. Right. Wow, they're compressing time. Jesus. Right. It's yeah. like the, the show is such a victim of its own ambition. Like you can appreciate what he was trying to do in theory, you know, taking taking this thug from the streets of Chicago all the way through and sort of mirroring the rise of the drug trade. But it just doesn't work. He didn't have the time. He didn't have the budget. And he didn't have the scripts to, to pull it off. Um, because if Vegas doesn't come across well versus Chicago, the whole South America thing is just it's just a nightmare how bad it is. I have this. So my theory is that. In his heart, man also really wants to make really issue oriented pictures in a mm-hmm. lot of ways. But a scene I return to a lot. And we'll discuss it more when we come around to this. But um, there is this moment in The Insider where Pacino's character is pitching a story on the corruption and abuses of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police. And he's making this argument that, like, they're an out-of-control police organization. They routinely terrorize, uh, like, Native communities in in uh, Canada. And nobody takes it seriously because, like, what? They, they're fucking Mounties? And is it the red suits? Like, he can't figure it out. But this is the story he wants to tell. It can't quite get around to it. Like the insider is the story of him, like telling the story of like the the uh, whistleblower on tobacco. But in the backdrop of this, he's like, "Damn, you know, I really wish sixty minutes could have dug into this story about like the RCMP." And I think that's man to an extent, where it's like in his heart, there's these other stories. I think he wants to get to. I think with less than Mohicans, he does start to get into them and shows like he really can handle some of this material but for the most part his instincts are going to lead him back to like what about dudes doing cool shit yeah and how can these dudes rock against this backdrop right (laughs) and if the dudes can't rock he's not telling that story and i think that like i think he's interested like uh like american intervention in south america uh what it is like to live like a, a a book I remember on this subject is uh, like beneath the claws of the eagle or something like that, discussing like uh, political life in Latin America, and I think like he's interested in that, and he wants to talk about it, but fundamentally it's always through the lens of, and then like 
team dudes rock goes down there and they see there's this messed up shit happening but he doesn't find a good way into the story he's attracted to it but i think by the time like the insider rolls around he's just not he's not going there he's alluding to it he can't quite he can't can't quite go there in the 80s he's like i can i can work this into the show and he really can't i think both because his understanding is too facile and then probably more pointedly the resources and budget uh certainly isn't there yeah the only part of season two that i really liked is is the way the rest of the mob kind of reacts to uh finding out that ray luca is still alive you know uh max goldman and even manny are kind of like oh fuck we thought we were done with this guy and now he's back like they could have done a whole season just about that they they didn't have to try to tell the entire story of of the drug war in america yeah, it's just it's it's like you said, it's it's it has a very facile understanding of that stuff, which is the same problem that the Miami Vice stuff around that those edges also just could not find a way to tell a story that wasn't just their riff on an A-team episode. And, you know, I, I kind of like that's the thing, though, is that like they're working with a network teller television constraints, the shows of that era that did stuff like that were the A-team, the Night Riders, you know, the mm-hmm. sort of the big dumb action shows that we're not ever going to get into any real politics whatsoever. It was purely about how does this backdrop of human suffering affect these characters that you like and you want to come back to every single week. And it just doesn't work. And it especially doesn't work here in a show that while it is a dude's rock show, which we are saying, you know, half jokingly, but like these dudes are not cool. These are not cool people the way that Miami Vice goes out of its way to make all its characters feel like they're supposed to be the coolest people on the planet, even when they very clearly are not. These are just weird, hard scrabble people who, Mm -hmm. you know, have come up in really dire circumstances and have made some fame and some infamy, but they are not cool at all. They are just fucked up, angry, violent people. And so here it just feels, I think, even more jarring than sort of like the kind of frivolous stuff that Miami Vice does. None of it fits together because it's trying to be too dark without an understanding of how to do that darkness right. For all that, I actually really like I do kind of love this first season, though. Like, yeah, no, I'm talking mostly about the second season. Oh, yeah. 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 But as I, as I think about the crime story as a whole, once again, it's one of these projects where I'm like, there is a lot here. And I think it's more impressive knowing that crime story makes perfect sense in the context of like TV of the late 90s and 2000s. Mm-hmm. You can see the HBO show it would, it would be if it came out then. Um, it just happens to exist 20 years before that moment really arrives. And I think that's kind of what makes it so interesting is that like there is this part of man i think you see it in heat too like heat is a crime epic like he's interested in sort of these long format like sweeping stories um crime story is his attempt to realize that through the the bounds of a network tv series and i think in a lot of places it really really works and it's like certainly singular against its contemporaries but like even this day like the period aspect of it, the way that it is like we are making a weekly cop show that's also like we are wedding elements of this to the Godfather series. We're going to we're going to turn this all into 
a high a high drama. Um, it's st- like still there are not many shows that have like been as ambitious or or touched on so many different influences. Yeah, I agree with yeah. that, and I I think season one holds up. I mean, I don't yeah. I don't know about you guys, but if more I, of it does than doesn't. This was my first yeah. time watching it, but I feel like more of like more of it is successful than isn't. I mean, I found myself at four o'clock in the morning going, I want to watch the next episode um, mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. and like being there for it and not like being like, well, I need to watch the next episode. It was just like I was like, no, I, I got to see what happens next time on Crime Story. <laughs> next time on crime story i can't the, the 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 opening narrator's voice it kills me it's like i mean like it's it's, it's it's incredible it is it's it's you know um it keeps reminding me of like you know like the 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 like early like late 70s early 80s anime dubbing you know voiceover narrators it just has a on crime story and it's just like what is this voice no human being has this voice <laughs> And this is the voice that you chose to introduce your show? Okay, fine. I is accept it, this. Is it a Dragnet thing? <laughs> is it like, what if Dragnet went hard as hell? I mean... Kind of. Kind of. Kind of. It's, I don't know. It, it is such It is such a weird thing uh, in, in touch. But yeah, like... It does like that. That soap influence does work. Like once it get, once you get on a good run of episodes, you're like, I just got to know... The no, it was really disappointing when I got to the end of the 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 Ving Rains episode and the to be continued came up and I was just like, "Is it really going to be to be continued?" And then it wasn't, and I was like, "Damn, they got me." They got me. <laughs> I just by the quick thing, again, like the sympathetic sob story behind a petty thief who's like turned to a life of crime is his wife is in a giant iron lung, and it's incredible. Like I can't. It is so jarring it's, to be like, man, why is why is this guy? Why is things turned out with this way for this guy? Is the most oh, Gary Sinise fucking thing. It's incredible. <laughs> he directs a ton of episodes too. I'm stunned. It's like after that, he does his guest stop, guest spot, and then they're like, "So you just want to direct the rest of the season?" And he's like, "Sure." And he's quite young at the time too. Yeah, very. Um, but also, I, I do love the detail too of like. My grandparents, like, it is weird to think when my grandparents were, uh, like, adults that, like, yep, polio was just a, polio, tuberculosis, these things are just out in the world, and they could just get you, Uh, and iron lungs were a thing that, like, people might just end up in, Um, and it's, it's weird because it's, like, it's, it's horrifying because you're, like, we can't, like, in in our in the world we grew up in, that shit was already archaic. That stuff hadn't existed for ages. And it's weird, like crime story revisiting that is like, yes, this is a thing that would have made perfect sense to people at this time, is like, yep. Ended up in an well, iron lung. Well, I mean, you talk about things that feel quaint now. Like the thing that really got me watching this is that so much of especially the end of season one revolves around this sports sports book yeah as like mm-hmm. kind of the linchpin yes. of their of their business and it's like yo i've got caesar's palace doing 20 commercials a night on every single sports <laughs> thing that i watch now like i can just sports book on my phone like the idea of this being sort of the linchpin of this like big criminal empire thing feels so archaic now but that's such a recent thing too like mm-hmm. it, like five years ago even that still wouldn't have been the case. 
Well, and also maybe like it's the point also of like the fact that organized crime is just sort of like the funhouse mirror version of American capitalism, right? right? Like that's and that runs through a lot of his his stories and this notion of like yeah, it was only a matter of time before like investment groups realized that like wow, you could just skin people directly if you if you got into <laughs> running sports books. Like it became legal the moment it became like feasible to just like have corporations take it take it over wholesale uh and and get it to the masses uh over the internet uh yeah the the minute it stopped being a thing we're like you know your guy and you call you call him you place a bet uh yeah then then of course it's legal um and and so it's 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 quaint but at the same time like i'm not entirely sure that i don't think the perspective of crime story would at all be surprised that someday yeah like people would just be betting from their homes right yeah, no, we would treat it as a logical logical extension of what, you know, what where things were going. It's just it's yeah. just so funny to watch it now and realize that like, oh no, we got there. We are now at we are now Manny Weisborg's dream. Well, and yeah, <laughs> and and to his point of like our kid your kids won't even know your connection to all this. Yeah. They right. will just hold the paper on part of their start stock portfolio. They will never have to sully themselves with knowing where the money came from or even running it, they will just, they will just own and reap the profit. And if that isn't the dream. Uh, So I will leave off crime story there. Uh, That also sort of wraps up for now, the Michael Mann TV producer superstar era. (laughs) And we are moving into his most successful period as a director, probably one of the, the, the main reason we're doing this series, uh, he, we're entering his run. Uh, we're going to skip over L.A. Takedown until Heat. Yes. Uh, we're going to discuss. I think LA that's Takedown. a that's a double episode, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just so, I just want to say that as we are moving into this, I do love that we are ending the Michael Mann TV era on a freeze frame of a plane crashing into the water with the title card of executive producer, Michael Mann coming up. It is the most Godfrey ho fucking ending they could have possibly gone with. It is so abrupt. It is so stupid. And I love that that is the note that the whole thing goes out on. So from here, uh, I think I said at the very start of the series that like, there's a number of Michael Mann movies, most of his films, in fact, I feel like I can make the argument that they're his best movie and therefore like one of the best movies of all time. And like, here's the run that's coming up. The last of the Mohicans heat, the insider, Ali collateral and Miami vice. And then there's public enemies, which I think is the continuation to a lot of thoughts he's having in crime story. Like, like public enemies is like right down to Stephen Lang uh, connection. Uh, there, there's a lot of stuff that's revisited, uh, from crime story and public enemies, but this, this run he goes on for, uh, like about just, just a little over 10 years, uh, with feature films is just incredible. And they're all, well, I think there's a essential, like Michael Mannishness to them. He's really all over the map in terms of subject matter and like delivery here. And, uh, like I think it's fascinating. And the next one up is 
the last of the Mohicans, the the movie that I that I, I baited the Dia trap uh, for <laughs> to, to to bring Dia in on this the this whole uh, this ridiculous project. Um, so if you've not seen the last of the Mohicans, you should check it out. I think it's it's still like one of my favorite films of all time. I still think it's one of his best and maybe still his most singular film. Um, and if you haven't seen it. When you get to the end of it, just ask yourself, who was the protagonist of this story? Who is who is the Michael? Who is the essential Michael Mann character in in the Last of the Mohicans? Think about it. We'll revisit it next time uh, we get back to back to manhunting. So glad we're uh, getting into the Spinati era. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Jeff, thank you so much for coming by. Thanks for uh, having been me. A delight to talk about it. Yeah, anytime I can talk about crime story, I, I, I'm happy to do it. <laughs> well, let us know if there's any other Michael Mann projects that you're like For weirdly sure. secretly obsessed with, and yeah. uh, we'll, we'll pencil you in. Yeah, if secretly you've been like, man, I loved me the ponies and luck. Uh, <laughs> then by all, the- <laughs> I did watch all those episodes, uh, all however well, many shit, there then were. You got like it over us, three like or 10, four. I think. Were there even ten? I don't know. I think the Maybe horses not, died yeah. before then. <laughs> so as I'm looking through it, there's there were some unaired episodes, and yes, this was a it was a fractious shoot, and the fact that they kept having bad luck with the horses uh, did not did not spell uh, did not spell success for 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 luck. But uh, we will we will cross that bridge when we come to it. Thank you so much for uh, joining us, Jeff, and thank you so much to all our listeners for supporting us on Waypoint Plus and. Uh, and, and climbing aboard uh, the 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 manhunting adventure. I hope that you got something out of Crime Story and maybe discovered uh, your own little like cult relationship with it. Uh, and once again, we'll be back next month uh, with Last of the Mohicans. So stay tuned. Until then, uh, for Jeff, for Alex, for Dia, uh, for Kato, for me. Good night. Yeah. Uh quick, let's pause here. Uh Dia, how fucking like bad is it? I mean, it's this. Discord really is scrubbing it. it. We don't hear shit. Oh, yeah, yeah. we're not hearing Crisp, it. Crisp is killing it on our end, but it's probably showing uh, up uh, on your personal it's track it's, it's not super big on like my waveform, but it's definitely like it's there. There. It'll be fine. If it's not super big, I'll be able to take care of it. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> I didn't, Kato. I it didn't even occur to me. I'm not recording a call wide. I have it. I have one. God bless. Always, always Dang. have one. That's why I'm always, here. always have your backups. <laughs> yep. yep. Um. Perfect. Thank you. Uh.